In journalism, there's a thing known as the death knock. It's where a journalist is tasked with talking to a family that have just lost a loved one. I'm yet to meet a journalist that loves doing it. So what happens when you're sent to the hospital where there are a large number of people who have lost loved ones and the horror that has just unfolded, having no idea how they might react to a journalist asking for their story? As the events of the March 15 terror attack unfolded, I spoke with a number of journalists about the benefit of the death knock for those grieving, if they are willing to talk. If they're met with empathy and compassion, it has the ability to be part of the process of healing. As you've now heard in previous episodes, the Muslim community that suffered through that event were extremely open and willing to talk. In so doing, it was good for them and good for the nation. But the step to get those stories had to come from journalists, and those journalists couldn't be shy about asking. They had to be respectful, but they couldn't be shy. I'm Frank Ritchie, media chaplain, minister, broadcaster. As the horror of March 15 was making its way onto our television screens, our radios, and into our online and print media, I made my way to Christchurch to support the journalists in the middle of it. In this series of podcasts, I'm sitting down with journalists who called Christchurch home and were on the front lines of letting the world know what was happening. Welcome to episode 5 of Friday Prayers. In this episode, I chat with Rachel Das. Rachel Das is an NZME reporter. You'll often hear her on News Talk ZB. What stood out for me in Rachel's experience was her compassion towards the victims. In the immediate aftermath of the attack, Rachel was one of the people that helped me understand what goes on for a journalist as they approach the families of victims. For that reason, I wanted her story to be told. Rachel, thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Frank. Now, do you want to unpack for us a little what your day-to-day work uh, with Newstalk ZB is? So I work as a radio reporter at Newstalk ZB. We rotate between different shifts. So I might be starting work at five or coming in at midday, either covering what's happening right now or preparing stories for the next morning. But That can be talking on the phone to a lot of people, a lot of different spokespeople about local Christchurch stories, the wider South Island, sometimes taking that out nationally, and then writing radio stories. So if you listen to the 8 o'clock bulletin in the morning, there'd probably be a couple of stories I'd written and put together. Um, Or if there was a breaking news event, if something was happening over on the coast with the Pike River Mine, I'd probably be over there doing some just live reports of what's going on. So it, it's always a mix. You never know what's going to happen, but radio is definitely the main format. Um, occasionally we'll do written pieces for the Herald, but it is mainly on air, either pre-recorded or, or live stories. As someone who's used to telling the stories, which, uh, which most journalists are, it's a slightly strange experience to be interviewed, I would imagine, especially when it comes to something as big as March 15. What's it feel like for you to be on that side of the microphone? Well, it feels like I'm wearing the wrong hat and that (laughs) something got mixed up. I should really be asking you about your experience of everything. So it does feel rather strange. I think you get so used to talking to the people who've been directly impacted by an event. So say March 15, the, the victims and the families and the people tightly around that situation, you're just the, the eyes and the ears to translate that message back to the wider audience so that they don't even know you're there. So to talk about my actually being there does actually feel quite odd 
Mm. And almost uncomfortable. Yeah, I could imagine. Yeah. As someone who conveys the information then, uh, receiving criticisms and affirmations, so in those times where people do notice you as the storyteller, uh, when obviously you'd hope that they just notice the story, what's that like? I think there's there's always that part that's nice to know you're doing a good job, um, regardless of what of what your job is. But it is strange having having it focused on what it's like as the journalist to be there. You just want to naturally reflect that back to no, no, no. Take it back to the person who's experiencing it. Take it back to what they've seen and heard. Mm. Which is is a little bit of what we'll we'll do here as we unpack what March fifteen was like for you. Uh, I remember catching up with you across the the weekend of that and seeing some of the experience as as you were as you were going through it. Um, but from from your lens, let, let's talk through that day. How did March fifteen start for you? Well, it started as all these the odd phone call or message coming to the office saying, "Oh, there's a." there's been a, a shooting or we think there's guns or we've heard something. But to be honest, we get a, a lot of different random reports from people. So it's hard to know sometimes if there's any legitimacy behind that. But after getting you know a couple of those, we um, I was sent out to the scene. So I, I was back in the Christchurch office. It's like a 15-minute drive into the city centre um, where the Al Noor Mosque is. So I jumped in the car and was making my way in. I was about two minutes from the scene probably so there'd been just back-to-back traffic and sirens everywhere which in Christchurch isn't a familiar situation to be in really Mm. pretty quiet pretty laid back so you're you're heading there you have really no idea what's taken place you just know that there's a there's a story there there's there's something that might need to be reported on absolutely and so at no point yet are you jumping to worse conclusions it's just something's happened it's a police incident are not saying much. That's quite normal to not know yet what's happening. And then I was actually given the call from our bosses to to turn around and to go back to the office. And at that point, I realised how significant things must be because as a journalist, you're on the front line. You're going to exactly where things are happening. And so to be told from your bosses, actually, it's not safe. We want you back in the office mm. was a, a very strange feeling situation to be in driving away from what was happening rather than getting right in the thick of it yeah the, this this bit interests me because i think this is the unique part of your story that er- editorial decision i think it was a really wise decision but it, it does work against the instinct it does work against the image that people would have of journalists as well as kind of running and trying to get the story no matter what putting your life on the line charging in front of the in front of the bullets uh, so as a journalist what was it like to turn around it felt I mean it felt wrong because you know you're meant to be right there in the middle of what's going on reporting on what you're seeing and and hearing and actually what you're witnessing and so to drive away it was going against everything as a journalist you feel like you should be doing but it was also interesting because honestly it did feel pretty intense what you were driving into by this point just with the amount of police presence and so there was an element that was going help it must be significant if our bosses have made this massive call for my protection Mm. in the midst of what seems to be an unfolding bigger and bigger event and I I spoke to someone at the hospital around that time who started to say what they were seeing 
of, of people coming in in injuries. So it was at that point that I started to get an idea. There were rumours of the Bangladeshi cricket team being outside the mosque of just how big and how awful this might be. Mm. I think it's worth uh, noting here too the collective journalism that goes on for something like this then where, where brands start to take a back seat, the competition starts to take a back seat and everybody starts to play their part in telling the story. So of course stuff was pumping uh, information out really early in the piece. Not everybody needs to do that. Every every brand plays a different part in the telling of the story and News Talk ZB has a different part to play in that mix as well. And I think being radio, we had a lot of uh, witnesses and callers, people who had been driving past actually ringing in live to the News Talk ZB show. So there was that element of people who were right there witnessing what was happening and saying what they were experiencing live live on air. Mm. Um, not to mention, you know, there were reporters across the country trying to call in and find out what was going on. But definitely we did still have that, now that I think about it, that live mm. presence of people who were might have been citizen reporting, whatever you want to call it, but they were right there on the scene. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that I, and as a News Talk ZB host, that's one of the things that I love about Talkback Radio is that democratisation of journalism, almost, where you get it beyond uh, beyond those who are trained to do it and people in the street at times like this and, and various other occasions where big things have happened in New Zealand, they start to be able to uh, tell tell the story. Of course, you didn't stay distant the whole time, though, and it's not your job to stay distant the whole time. It's just as the worst of it was playing out. So at what point did you start to have very real first-hand contact with what had happened? I had some um, big conversations with people sort of over the phone that, that first day, but it wasn't until the day after on the Saturday, the 16th of March, that I went um, basically as close to the mosque as you could get, the Al Noor Mosque um, by Hagley Park, but also over to the community centre where all the, the victims and the families were gathering. And that was a pretty sobering moment, um, approaching a place where people were still just wondering, was their family member okay? Mm. Would they be able to talk with them again? And so I spent basically a lot of that day just approaching different people and I really yes I'm a journalist but I also wanted to be myself in it and say look I don't even have words to say like you're going through the most horrific thing right now and I just want you to know that at Christchurch we're here I, I live here I've grown up here saying sorry just seems ridiculous but just just trying to express and connect as a human being mm. living in this place and from there just say, hey, is there anything you'd like to say? You know, do you know someone who was at the mosque? Were you there? And it was amazing and it was such a privilege and I couldn't get over how many people actually wanted to share their story and there were tears and there were hugs with people you know you've never met before mm. as as I remember a dad just starting to cry and and saying that his his son was in there and uh describing that whole account of of what had happened and being let into that incredibly personal deep grief that I can't begin to imagine what it's like but being allowed into that yes to then share with New Zealand as a whole but personally that was very much deeply impacting. Mm. 
How do you understand the nature of what you were doing there? And, and I, I ask that because one of the things that I've had to talk about with young journalists in particular is how they understand what's known in the industry as the death knock. You know, where someone's just died or so a family's just lost someone and you're the journalist who's got to turn up, you've got to knock on the door or give them a call and you've got to try and get the story and get the information. Now, people who aren't journalists uh, who hear about that uh, then see journalists as people who are just going to shove the mic in the face and go, so what's your story? Tell us your story. How did you understand the nature of what you were doing? It's a really good question. I think it's something you always, well, it depends who you are. I mean, I, I don't get excited about approaching someone in that moment. It's like, whoa, this is, a, this is a personal thing. You almost want to give some sort of privacy and respect. But at the same time, people want, and in a situation like this, need to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what I, what I really tried to do was just to, as I mentioned before, be a real person in that situation, not shy away from the horror of what had happened, but actually try and extend some form of, in this moment, I'm here with you Mm. and I don't pretend to know what it's like where you are, but is there anything you would want to say that you would like to share a story about your loved one and realising in that, that for some people actually getting to talk about whoever it was that was missing or that they've lost is actually really important and getting to paint a picture of who they are and share share the human side of it rather than just all these numbers and horrible accounts. Mm -hmm. And so I guess humanising and giving someone an option that if they'd like to, that door is open. And as I mentioned before too, it, it amazed me how many people actually did want to talk in that moment. And I think like the day after and the days to come, some of that changed. People weren't necessarily so open. The media presence swamped the city. Like even that afternoon as I was there, it was kind of me and a couple of other people, people moving around at different times media-wise. But then, you know, the international media started coming in and I think that did probably create a little bit more caution or hold back from some people sharing their stories anyway. Yeah, I could imagine, because uh, then they'd be starting to deal with journalists who don't have that that personal connection. How, how was that for, for you guys, the Christchurch reporters? Um, how was it for you? I mean, you're reporting on your home, whereas, uh, like I spoke to uh, some reporters that weekend from Australia, and uh, there's a totally different emotional dynamic for, for them. This is almost... As horrible as it sounds, it's almost the sort of story they dream of. You know, you fly in, there's a crisis, you get to report the crisis and then you fly off back home and you're paid to stay at a motel, have a few drinks along the way. It's a totally different experience. What's it like for you local reporters dealing with that? When you've, I mean, not all of us have grown up here, but when you live somewhere and it's your home and the park is the one, the place that you walk around and you've got friends from all sorts of different backgrounds and cultures and, and nationalities. Um, it is tough because you know that you're there for the long run. I mean, regardless of where I go in the future, Christchurch will always be home. And 
so you really want well, I really wanted to to respect and love the people that I was coming into contact with it wasn't just oh he's someone who could be I mean yes they might be amazing radio talent per se and really take the listener to that moment but at the end of the day it's your own backyard and so I think there is quite a big difference between wanting to respect and honour and yes you want the story and it's that strange balance between asking questions and recognising someone's right to privacy and not giving an opportunity and asking questions but also not pushing overbearingly because they are they are my next door neighbour basically mm. and and it does bring a very different lens and so when you see people kind of pushing and someone being bombarded I guess personally I find that quite difficult. Mm. What surprised you most in the encounter with the Muslim community and the victims here? What surprised you the most? Because I would imagine, uh, I would imagine your contact with that community wasn't high prior to the attack. Uh, it wasn't too high. I'd had a bit of contact through study. Um, mm. we'd, we'd gone to visit the mosque, but also through just some personal friendships as well. Um, people who who go to the go to the mosque and mm. so you know that's your immediate thought too of, of the ones you know there but I think what was really incredible to see and, and a lot of people would probably talk about this was just people's openness and grace in the middle of such a terrible terrible tragedy as in being okay to let you into that moment um, speaking of forgiveness right from the get go you know, that dad I was speaking with, he's absolutely devastated, but also saying, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to extend forgiveness basically, and I'm not going to let, that this isn't going to stop Christchurch growing and moving forward as a city. And that was someone who was the most deeply impacted you can imagine. I mean, that's firsthand. So I think, well, something I was, I've always been kind of aware of, I've got friends from all over the show but the more you get to know people from a cultural background you might consider be different to yours we've got so much in common yes we do we've got way more in common than what divides us and that's not just a nice thing to say like chat to your next door neighbor or getting to meet more people from within the muslim community there's so much we share and it's so rich and and beautiful to explore that as well so i think Definitely opening up and reminding me of of that. Mm. Mm. There was a I remember a photo of you. Uh, I can't remember how long after the actual event it was, but it was a photo of you hugging, and there was a story that went with it. But I don't remember the details of the story, so forgive me. Um, of you hugging a woman, can you remember that? I I do actually. I remember that vividly. I'd been talking with people that whole morning, the day after, and. I'd just gone to have a quick snack, was walking back and there was this woman in a blue, this vibrant blue hijab approaching mm. me with her family and we just made eye contact and it was just one of those instant connections. I don't even know her name. Mm. I wish I did. But in the moment, we looked at each other and we just embraced and it was the most natural thing somehow to share that moment of 
humanity and when I think about that moment, it was an incredible privilege mm. to be there on that day, to be let into someone's grief and deepest moment. And yeah. that was probably one moment where I just thought, I don't want to ask for your story right now. Mm. I'm just going to have this moment. And there, there happened to be a, an international photographer. I, I didn't know until afterwards. Um, he'd been snapping pictures and, and then he asked my name at the end. So he just captured that moment that, that happened where we em- embraced. I can't remember if we cried or not, but she walked on and I walked on. I really like that. I like I like that. What the reason it's touching is it's so easy to relegate people to a role in something like this. You have the uh, shooter, you have the victims, you have the journalists. Uh, but in that mix is a whole lot of humanity. So the beauty of that image and hearing you tell that story is the categories of victim and journalist disappear in that moment and we have two humans who are dealing with grief. Uh, I think that's pretty special. You've had a, a different thing to have to process post that. Like the journalists that I've spoken to so far um, have had to deal with the immediate, uh, like they were some of the first on the scene. It's, it's immediate for them, um, dealing with blood and bodies. Uh, whereas for you, um, there's the heaviness of stories that you've gone and encountered as people have been at the hospital and and in other places how have you processed that moving on I think moving on getting to sit with people's longer term grief and connecting with victims and or families of victims sort of a few months down the track and I'm not sure if I'm answering your question directly, but there there is a sense at which some of us, you know, life does keep going on. And for some of us, you move on with different things sooner than others, but spending time with people who've been impacted personally and deeply further on down the track and just seeing that the ongoing repercussions, that's always just been this blatant reminder to me of, some people's lives are always going to be different, yeah. And 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 no 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 matter how much um, anger or forgiveness or whatever's in that, you that's always that's always going to be different. And so I think that's actually been one of the things moving forward as I go about my life. That in some ways you could say is the same, but is not the same. I mean, I haven't obviously I, I haven't been part of the Muslim community to have lost someone, but when you're getting to walk a little bit and talk with people who have been impacted when you're hearing of one still worried about whether they should go out or wear a hijab because mm. they might be more conspicuous because of that. When you're hearing of, of businesses closing down and still the fallout a year on, it's kind of quite a sobering reminder, I guess. We're, we're quite good in some ways that just moving on but realising for others that's never going to be the same again mm. and so how do we tell stories now that kind of capture where people are at but also show how things are moving forward yeah I think I think that's a really important point because there was the outpouring of grief as soon as it happened we had the, like the, the they are us uh, slogans 
which is a way of, of, I guess, the nation processing the grief. But our humanity is still there afterwards. And our humanity has its positive sides that causes that sort of unity in a moment like that, but it also has its negative sides. Um, they don't go away magically. Uh, it's a constant battle to have to deal with those, which is why the storytelling of people like yourself is so important because it reminds us that that humanity and all its glory and its messy and its brokenness is still still there. We still need to process it. We need to be reminded about these things. So, Rachel, thanks for taking the time, and thank you for what you do. Thank you, Frank. It's a real privilege. Thank you. That was Rachel Das. My thanks goes to NZME Christchurch for providing the space and equipment to record that conversation. In the next and final episode, I chat with Logan Church from RNZ National. I spent some time with Logan on March 16th. He hadn't slept since beginning his reporting the previous day, and we managed to touch base in a small window before he got back into reporting. He was still running on adrenaline, clearly shell-shocked, and trying to work it all out. I wanted to know how he was doing now, a year on. 